I first came to Buddhist practice some thirty thirty five years ago, and I uh, I had started practicing with uh, uh, some. I wanted to learn how to meditate and. People directed me to somebody who was not a Buddhist. He was kind of a guru type. And not my scene, but I, I really learned a lot from him very quickly. Because uh, he had a lot of cities, what's called cities, which are powers. It's very powerful. Um, not very ethical, but powerful. And and so I was stayed in his group about eight months and then I got kicked out and that was not a bad thing to get kicked out um, and so I started looking around for places to meditate because I'd really learned to appreciate meditation and so I started going to Zen Center in San Francisco and and I liked it because you could go in at 5.30 in the morning and sit and then you could leave and you didn't have to relate to anybody. And I kind of like that. And, and what impressed me and what I want to start with tonight is the way they call you to practice in Zen is they, they don't have a bell. They hit a big, thick block of wood, you know, and they, and they hit it like that. And then you'll hear it again. And then they start to quicken the pace. If you're in the meditation hall, you're in. If you're not in, you have to stay outside. And But what impressed me was the block of wood, big, thick block of wood, called a Han, I believe. I'm not positive about that. And it's thick, and it's got writing on it. And the writing is said, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter hyphen. Uh, great is the matter of birth hyphen and hyphen death. Uh, life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And that impacted me, and it's impacted me ever since. And I still feel impacted. I I love that simple teaching. Great is the matter of birth and death. Because I find that to be uh, unfathomable on a certain level. Like, what is it that we have been born and that we're going to die? Like, And that's not a strange thing. That's just how things work. Right? And it's how things work for anything that is born, sustains for a moment or a while, and then dies. And of course, please tell me if you know something that doesn't, isn't born and dying. But as far as I have found so far, everything is here for a moment or a while or a hundred years, and then it goes whatever it might be, whether it's a person or a 
dog or a cat or a porpoise or a, a raven or a turkey or a turkey vulture or an elephant or a crocodile or a kangaroo or uh, a mosquito or or even a tree. I mean, I'm talking mostly about sentient beings, but also even plants. They all, they're so beautiful. The flowers, the trees, they come, they go, they're here for a while, even sometimes a few hundred years, and then they still go, right? They're born, and then they die. And it's normal. It's not a mistake, at least in my understanding. Like, oh, that's the way things are. Things are born and they live for a while and then they die. And there's something in the quote, great is the matter of birth and death. It's, it's magical or there's something quite mysterious and beautiful about it. Even that we're all sitting here, conscious is totally, can anybody explain that really? I mean, I, I know the scientists explain everything, but um, they're not as clear as they think they are, in my humble, unscientific opinion. Meaning, meaning they say a lot of things that are true on a certain level of reality, but that's not the only level of reality that life exists on, is not on the biological or the neurological even. It's a little more mysterious than that. A little more, at least for me, magical or unfathomable. And so since the beginning of my practice, I've been interested in, you know, great is the matter of birth and death. And again, it's hyphened, birth, hyphened, and hyphened, death. It's connected. You don't get one without the other. Everybody clear about that? If you're born, you're going to die. If you're dying, it's because you were born, right? I know that's kind of simplistic, but I think it's true. And of course, I'm always happy to hear if I'm wrong. And please feel free to tell me in some very kind note how wrong I was. And death has been um, appreciated grieved, celebrated in every culture. You know, uh, we just had the, the Day of the Dead in Spanish culture, right? Dio de Mortos. Um, and what, the, what people do on the Day of the Dead traditionally is family and friends pray for and remember friends and family members who have died and help support their spiritual journey. Right, so there's a connection not just between um, uh, us and our relationship to death personally, but also to those we know, love, care about who've died, and that connection may not end at physical death. In fact, it doesn't end in physical death because any feeling we have about them is still alive and here. And of course, not of course, maybe you all know Halloween. Do you know what that is or was originally? Halloween was, was originally All Saints' Eve. 
All Saints Eve. And it was a Christian holiday, meaning um, uh, it meant hallowed evening or holy evening. Halloween. Holy evening to celebrate with a prayerful spiritual bond between those who, are, uh, who have died and those who are alive. And there's something a little bit similar also in Japanese Buddhism. It's a ceremony for the spirits of the departed ones called the Sagaki. And um, the Sagaki ceremony, which summons forth all the restless spirits and pacifies agitation and violence both within and without. And one reads the names of family or friends and, you know, community members who have died. And uh, Kobinchino, who taught here in America, Kobinchino Roshi, said the Sagaki uh, ceremony makes a statement about how to deal with negative things, negative happenings, negative parts of phenomena. And he went on to say, he said, for expanding awakening into the darkness, expanding awakening into the darkness, awareness is expanded to existence. And he talks about here existence, which is unseen, unknown, unthought, meaning you can't grab existence, right? It's a certain, like, we all know we exist, but where's existence? itself. I mean, it lives here, but it's a little bit like awareness. You can't quite grab it. Same three, three words I associate in this way. Awareness, consciousness, and existence. They're here, but there's nothing here at the same time. They're not a thing like this is a thing, and I can grab it. But existence... <laughs> consciousness, awareness. It's totally here, but it's not a thing. They sometimes they say it's no thing or nothing. So he says that. He says, awareness is expanded to existence, which is unseen, unknown, unthought. Negative is another positive side. Awareness is already round and pure. We can expand our practice of compassion in space as well as time. Right? And when they do this ceremony in Japanese Buddhism, the doshi, uh, the officiate says, welcome hungry ghosts. Welcome hungry ghosts. Be at ease. The vaguely known, the unconscious and the unknown, receive the best food. Right? You give the best to the, to the unconscious. You give your heart. You open fully and with your awareness to these experiences which are not totally clear what they are because they're not a thing. It says, receive the best food, welcome, be safe. And so I hope to speak a little bit about death and 
our relationship to death and the Buddhist relationship to death, my own personal relationship to death a little bit tonight. And I always like to give some facts about death and somebody brought up birth and death today in the in the feedback when we were talking and so I was looking at uh, the the this is, these are the facts, kind of the facts. What I was looking at on the computer kept changing every second because it was telling me that, yeah, you'll hear. So it said every second, 4.2 human beings are born. Like four more, 4.2 more of us just came and then another 4.2 more of us and another 4.2 more of us. I may be going a little quick. It, 4.2 more of us, right? It, we keep happening so far, right? And 1.8 humans die every second. So almost two of us are gone every time I snap my fingers, right? And so, and this is where it kept changing, but it said, 294,632 births occurred today. 294,632 births occurred today. 123,660 deaths occurred today. And this was right at something like 638 tonight. There were, there's more by now, right? So, just to give you an idea what's happening every second, every, you know, day, right? This is not a mistake. This is reality at work. People are being born, people are dying. And it said this year there's been 50,411,473 births so far this year up until um, May 11th this year. And of course there have been 21,151,043 deaths this year so far. Right? So you hear how it, it's just part of life. Right? People are born, people die. Does that make sense? Right? Like, that's just how it goes? Or that's the deal, if we want to speak a little more colloquially? I always found it fascinating to actually hear how many people are coming and going all the time. Right? I mean, because we talk a lot about things arise and pass in Buddhism. We're, we, we are arising and passing, and it's not a mistake. It's normal, as far as I can tell. Now, that, I'm not saying every death is a normal death, but I'm saying the overarching experience of what it is to be born is that also we die. And in Buddhism, Death is talked about a lot of different ways. One way is there's a beautiful story about the Buddha's death 
I believe the sutta is called the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Mahaparinibbana. Nibbana is nirvana, right? It's awakening. The maha means great, right? The great awakening is one way they talk about death because there's a certain kind of freedom that Buddhism points to that is about letting go. And death is about letting go. And here's one of Eugene's things he likes to throw in here. He always says, here's the good thing about what we're teaching about death, which is you will all succeed. Right? Really, so far we haven't had anybody here who's, you know, lived long enough who failed to die. It's just, we're good at that in that way. And the Buddha also died. He wasn't a magical being from some other galaxy or realm of reality that lived forever. He wasn't a god, right? It was one of the key things. He was a human being. When, when they asked, what are you? Because people could tell there was something special about this person. He said, I'm awake. He didn't say, oh, I'm magical or I'm, I'm divine or I'm sacred or I'm holy or anything like that. He said, I'm awake. And that's interesting to me. And part of his, he had a, quite a, he had a lot of cities like my friend who uh, was my first teacher who had certain powers. Um, um, uh, the Buddha also, he, his mind was very awake, bright, open, clear. And he had a lot of what we would call intuition or psychic ability because his consciousness was so free. And, uh, and so he knew when he was going to die. He didn't decide to die. He just knew when it was going to happen. And so there's the story about his death is they it talks about him going around and visiting all the um, places of practice that he'd established for people, and he gives his last teaching to each of them, and and it's very similar in each one. He teaches about the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path, which is how to live life and how to live life and wake up living life, not not living life, but by living life, waking up. And what does it mean to wake up in our, in our, with our, some wisdom and some, um, uh, the sense of uh, aspiration and in our work and in our relatedness, in our speech and in our, you know, finances and how to use the meditative process to awaken our heart and mind. And so he talked about what's important to the to the his followers, people who'd practice with him, both monastics and householders. And for me it really brings a question of what's important, what's important to us. What's important to me? What's important to you? What do you care about? What do you value? What do you wish to do with this, you know, 
great it's a matter of birth and death. What do you want to do with this time that's so precious and is not permanent, right? We're here for a while, whatever the while is, whether it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 110. Some people are living even a little longer than 110 now. You know, good luck to that. Not my desire, but who knows? I'm not in control. Maybe I'll live even longer than I want. I remember when my dad was older, he was ready to go. He was, uh, he, my dad died at 92 and he was like, he called me up once. He said, oh, can, can you help me with this? I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of this, you know. And, and, you know, I was like, no, I don't think I can really help you with that. But, you know, you know, and he didn't want me to do any therapy with him or anything like that. He was very clear. <laughs> um, but he was tired. And and it happens, and it's it's not. There was nothing bad happening for him, but it's normal. The body doesn't work so well as we age. That's normal. I was telling maybe Bob about how I love what Thich Nhat Hanh says. He says, "When you're young, the body serves you. When you're old, you serve the body, because you have to keep taking care of it more and more. It needs its." taking care of its upkeep. Yeah, my dad, I remember when my dad died, even dying, you know, we think it's such a bad thing. It's not always a bad thing. I didn't feel so bad when he died. I was sad when he died, but he was ready to go. So I was like a little bit happy for him. And I also was happy for me because some of my illusion about him died with him. And I'll tell you what happened, really. You know, I, I, I saw my dad regularly, and I wasn't there when he died, but I was there soon after. And, um, and I saw his dead body, and I spent a lot of time around dead bodies and hospice, so I'm comfortable with it. So I want to always touch the body because it's, as I believe you said, it's really different when, when the body, you know, the life's not there anymore. Not, you know, the body still has life in it, but the consciousness is not there anymore, right? Like my dad was not there. The body was there. And it was oh interesting because I felt so, I was so surprised by the positivity I felt like, because I felt like, oh, he's not an old man anymore. And I don't mean there's anything wrong with being old, but I'd fixated him in my mind as an old man. And I'd known him my whole life, right? And he'd been old the last part of it. And it he, it's kind of like um, in my mind, he got stuck in my mind as an old man. But when he died, then I started remembering all these other times when he wasn't an old man, right? He was a just a person and he was a person at different phases of life like we all are and they're all real but none of them define who we are that's what was freeing it was like oh he's not an old man anymore and I realized I didn't know who he was now 
And that was also caught my attention because who knows what happens? I don't know what happens next. You know, and we're all, this is the other Eugene, very positive thing. We're all going to find out, right? So don't worry about if you don't know, because you're going to know, you know, either today or tomorrow or 50 years from now, whenever. And that's why practice is so helpful, because then we learn, because what we're learning when we sit here is how to be present with what's true and how to stay present, whether we like what's true, whether we don't like what's true, whether we agree with it or don't agree with it, we can be aware of it and not be bound to it. And there can be some freedom in any moment that we're here. And also, I mean, my mom, here's another, these are, I'm telling you some death stories because Death is tragic, sad often, difficult, uh, but also who knows what's going on. I don't know exactly, except my mom was dying, dying of cancer, and we knew she was dying. We were caring for her and being with her and spending time with her. She was mostly unconscious at the end of her life. And um, and uh, I was not staying in the house because... Uh, uh, I was staying in a little motel around the corner from my parents' house at that time. And um, and uh, I was in the shower uh, one morning and uh, getting ready to go over there. Or no, no, here's what happened. I was getting, I was in the shower one night um, getting re ready to go to sleep. And, um, and I felt and I felt something about her. It just came out of nowhere. And I just felt like, oh, you don't have to wait for me to be there to die, right? Like I don't have to be in the room for you to die. And I, I can't explain this, but this is what happened. So I had this feeling, I don't have to be in the room for you to die. And 10 minutes later, I got the call that she had just died. And so I'm saying this not because I did anything. I, all I was doing was taking a shower, really. But reality is more fluid than we might know. Even the fact that I could get that message, what felt like a message from my mom, that she was could die right now. And I, and I sent some kind of message. I had this feeling, I don't have to be there. It's okay for you to die. And then I get the call. She died. Who knows what that is? But, but I knew it, even though I don't know how that happened or why that happened. And I'm pointing to something about the more we can get present with Marana Sati, with the truth of being mindful about death, reality begins to reveal itself in my experience, in my understanding. And there's also sometimes, at least for me, there's also been a fair amount of humor with death. And I'm not saying always or every death is like we laugh, but I mean, with my mother, there was some real humor because um, I went over there and we 
cleaned, we washed her body. It was me and uh, my brothers. And, and, you know, she had three sons and we're all grown men and we washed her body. I haven't seen my mother naked in, I hadn't seen, you know, in whatever it was, 40 years or something, right? You know, 50 years, I hadn't seen her naked. And, and uh, but, but we washed her body because that's one of the things you do to pair the, to prepare the body, and it's a it's a ritual we did. And uh, what was interesting was I hadn't seen her naked, and I see her breasts, and I'm having this whole reverie about oh, these are the breasts I fed on, right? Fed from, and I was having this reverie, and then I realized oh, that that didn't happen at all. She didn't breastfeed me. They, they didn't, there was some weird thing that was happening around the era that I was born. They were telling women, oh, don't, don't breastfeed, you know, feed them with a bottle. So I got fed with a bottle. So I'm having this whole reverie about my mother who's dead. That's not even true, you know? And so I'm mentioning it because it made me laugh when I realized, you know, keep being aware of what's true is very important. Because we make up a lot about death and about the person and about what happened or who they were or what. And, and that was so plain to me when I did that. And partly, we, partly what we're doing here is learning how to be real with what's true, right? With the Dharma. And here's a quote that I like very much from Ajahn Chah. He said, um, and this was, he gave this talk. He was called to the home of a student who was dying, a householder. And he, and the, the woman was lying in her bed and dying. And he gave this talk to her. He said, he said, please determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During this time that I'm speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it were the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dharma. Listen well, understand that the Buddha himself, with his great store of merit and virtue, could not avoid physical death. And even the Buddha couldn't avoid, avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is called Sakadharma the truth, the truth of the body. And it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. And of course, it, he's, he's teaching all of us, look at our bodies and come to terms with the truth. It's not a mistake, it's not wrong. You can't do it so that death doesn't happen far as I can tell. And I'm happy to try. I like being around, but but that doesn't seem to be the, the way it works. The Buddha said, he continued, he said, the Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in the world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is contemplate the body and mind to see their impersonality, 
to see their impersonalness, I'll say it that way, see that neither of them is me or mine, right? We don't own the body. We're here, we relate to it, we want to relate kindly, skillfully, wisely, healthy ways, but we don't own the body, right? And actually, we don't own the mind either, which he's pointing at. He says, neither of them, neither body and mind is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples, they differed from us only in one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. And it's a beautiful teaching because it's so simple what he's saying. He's just saying, oh, no, they just accepted the way things are. And that doesn't mean it's easy to accept the way things are. But part of what practice does, what coming here, practicing, and contemplating life and death is beginning to teach us how to, in my words, relax about the way things are. Come into alignment with the way things are. Come into harmony with birth and death. And you hear stories sometimes about some people and their relationship to death. This is again Suzuki Roshi. This is from, I forget the gentleman's name. He wrote a biography of, the, of Suzuki Roshi. David Chadwick, that was good, good memory. Um, and that's, that's a Eugene thing. I had a brain injury. I lost a lot of memory. So whenever I have memory, I'm, I'm happy to appreciate it. <clears throat> um, and, and the student said, said, I went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, skin discolored. He bowed and I did the same. Then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, he said, don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. That's a very powerful statement from really quite an awake person, Suzuki Roshi, who changed the world that we know, you know, changed my world, because he was the founder of Zen Center when, when I, where I went and heard the, the Han being rung. And he changed so many people I know. He had such a profound impact on Zen in America. And then there's very poignant pieces about death. This is from uh, Isa, who was a, 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 wrote Japanese haiku. And his, uh, he and his wife's first child died shortly after birth. And then they had another daughter who died less than two and a half years later. And he wrote a haiku. It said, the world of dew, D-E-W, the world of dew is the world of dew. 
and yet, and yet. And for me that, again, is just a profound teaching about life and death, the world of do. It's all magical. It's all mysterious. It's just, we're, we're just a drop of dew on a, on a leaf. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's magical. If you ever, like when you, well, you know when you see your nature, you see a drop of dew on something, and it's just radiant. It's just beautiful. And he's appreciating the world of dew is the world of dew, and yet, and yet. And yet it's poignant because it's only here for a moment. We're only here for a moment. Life is only here. It comes and goes. Hmm. This is from Sogyal Rinpoche. He said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We do not have to wait for a painful or difficult death of someone close to us or, or the shock of a terminal illness to force us into looking at our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our life. And this is part of the benefit of, of contemplating birth and death. Like, what's important? What do you want to do? However old you are, wherever you are, what do you want to do now? What do you care about? What would speak to your heart? In whatever way, it doesn't, and be careful to watch out for doing grand things. What little thing can we do that would make our heart happy right, in our lives? We can make, he says, we can begin here now to find meaning in our lives. We can, we can make of every moment an opportunity to change. And we can prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, with peace of mind for death. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, W-H-O-L-E, as one whole, one complete where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. It does. It gives us this mirror when we contemplate death. What's important? What do I care about? What do I, what do I want? What do I desire? And sometimes Buddhists think you're not supposed to have any desires. That's not accurate. Uh, the Buddha was very clear about his desire to wake up. And he followed it all the way to the end, as they say in Zen. He followed it all the way, but he was, and he was fierce about it because he wanted something and he went for it. And our relationship to death there's a bunch of different quotes from different people. Lorca. Lorca was a Spanish poet, I believe. Does anybody know Lorca? Pardon? Poor? Yeah, yeah. He said, those who are afraid of death will carry, carry it on their shoulders. Those who are afraid of death will carry it on their shoulders. Or Corazon Aquino, the, who was a woman Filipino president, 
she said, I would rather die a meaningful death than live a meaningless life. That's a fierce understanding. I would rather die a meaningful death than live a meaningless life. Or Mahatma Gandhi, and I was just wanting to put a lot of different voices in the room about death. Mahatma Gandhi said, live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were going to live forever. That's good dharma. Live, live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were going to live forever. This is a little more American. A fellow named Steve Jobs. He said, remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. Again, that's really a profound teaching, Steve Jobs. I had the good fortune to be in Bhutan last year, which was, I haven't traveled, I hadn't traveled for many, many years because I had a very serious bicycle accident and brain injury. And so I hadn't traveled out of this country for many, many years. But I, so I finally got better. I wanted to go to Bhutan and we went to Bhutan. And, one of the things in Bhutan, I learned so much about Buddhism, not because anybody told me anything, but how the people lived their practice, which they lived their practice. And, uh, and uh, in Bhutan they say, contemplating death five times daily brings happiness. So, uh, <laughs> it's funny, I do a little of that. <laughs> There is an app, it's called, <laughs> it's one of the few, I'm not an app guy, but it's one of the few apps I subscribe to and I get, and they send me these teachings five times a day. And the, and the app's called We Croak. <laughs> it's true. And it's teachings about death. And sometimes, you know, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're dumb, but you know. It's still interesting because I relate to it. It's like a way to just consider it's true. And I also think it's good to have, I mentioned this, a little humor about death. So the last thing, this is from Ta Wei, who uh, was a monk. And he announced, and this often happened in Chan Buddhism, Zen and Chan, is sometimes people would announce they were going to die before they died. And so he announced, I'm gonna, uh, tomorrow I'm going to the monks, nuns, and lay people. An attendant asked him for a death verse. It's also very common in that tradition that people would write a death verse. Um, and he wrote, birth is thus. Death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? (laughs) 
so a few thoughts on birth and death, about what does it mean to be real here together, which is really all we're doing, is getting real together about something that's true and, in my view, is normal, birth and death. And it's happening every second that we sit here. You know, if I was more sophisticated, maybe I would have uh, tallied up how many births and deaths happened during this talk on this planet, right, for human beings. Because it's just part of the deal. And so we, we're going to keep looking at our relationship to something that is the Dharma. It's the truth that we're here and we're going to be here for a while. And of course, it's beautiful to be here, really beautiful to be alive. Doesn't mean it's always great. I don't, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna about life at all, but there's something magical about what's speaking and what's listening to what's speaking. And we want to keep looking at what, and that's why it can be very interesting to feel your body and let your body hear my words not just your mind. Take it in somatically, kinesthetically, energetically. The liveness that's sitting here that is speaking and also hearing what's here. Let's sit for a minute, please. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life.
Thank you for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking meditation. <laughs>